Pierre Sokolsky is a distinguished professor of physics and astronomy and the Dean Emeritus of the College of Science at the University of Utah. He has been a leader in the field of particle astrophysics with a specific interest in the highest energy particles produced by the natural processes in the universe. Born in France, he was educated at the University of Chicago and at the University of Illinois. He is a fellow of the American Physical Society, past Guggenheim Fellow, and a recipient of the Panofsky Prize of the American Physical Society. Pierre Sokolsky, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you. Happy to and, be here. And so uh, we were speaking a, a little bit before we began. I, you're, you're a scientist, you're, your concentration is astrophysics. I, I'm interested in, in your journey to that. You said you're, you have a broad curiosity. I mean, what, was it the natural path for you? How, did, how, did, what, how were your interests ignited in that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, my uh, <clears throat> parents were uh, basically Russian immigrants, although my mother was half French, which is how they wound up in Paris and I was born there. And my father, I think, is probably a, a kind of a classic representative of the 19th century Russian intelligent. Uh, you know, someone who is really interested in ideas and literature and poetry. And so I grew up in this atmosphere of uh, great interest in, in Russian culture in particular, but also music. So I've actually asked myself this question, given all that, how did I wind up going into uh, astrophysics? It, it's, it's kind of an obvious path. I mean, I remember reading some of my earliest memories are reading, you know, the, the great Russian poets, Pushkin and uh, Lermontov, when I was like, I don't know, must have been six, seven, eight years old, because uh, that was the books, those were the books that my father had, you know, so, and I, I was a pretty voracious reader when I was a, a small, small boy. But then as I, I went on, my mother wanted me to become a doctor, but I, I couldn't, stand the sight of blood and it was not something I was ever interested in doing and somewhere along the line partly I think it was because in the 50s and certainly in the early 60s there was this whole you know turn towards the space age because of Sputnik and the U.S. competition with Russia and so I got caught up in this sort of excitement about space and about technology. And I think I started reading science fiction, science fiction novels. And they appealed, I think fundamentally I'm a romantic, which is kind of an odd thing to say if you're a scientist. <clears throat> but what's always attracted me are the romantic aspects of science. So whether it be the instrumental uh, development, you know, or the uh, fascination with outer space, uh, the stars and, and, and planets and galaxies. <clears throat> so I got to start reading about astronomy and little by little I got more and more interested. So by the time I got to college, uh, I actually wanted to be an engineer. And I arrived at the University of Chicago only to discover that the University of Chicago does not have an engineering curriculum. <laughs> and so I thought, well, what should I do? And I thought, well, physics is close to engineering, so I'll, I'll, I'll try physics. So I, I started as physics, but I took a lot of humanities courses, 
you know, the University of Chicago in those days had this, uh, was still connected to its, what I would call its glory days as a uh, educational institution in the uh, post-war period. They had a wonderful president by the name of Hutchins who insisted that everybody take the same courses, the same set of curricula that basically introduced you to the great works of literature, of art, of music, so that we became cultured people, you know. And then you could, once you had this base of culture, then you could go on and specialize in whatever areas. And although that had been, I would say, somewhat watered down by the time I arrived at Chicago in 63, it was still very much there. And so I was exposed to a lot of those ideas. And also, you know, this was the very end of the generation of professors who emigrated to the United States after or during the World War. A lot of them were Germans and or Europeans of various sorts. And they were extraordinary teachers because they felt compelled, I think, because of their experiences during World War II and, and, and observing the collapse of the civilization which they had grown up in, you know, very much like my father who had, you know, had to live through the collapse of his, of his culture with the revolution in Russia and the Civil War, and et cetera. They had a message. They wanted to teach the new generation our generation, you know, what they came from, what, what the ideals, what the, what, what, the, what the culture of Europe was before this disaster occurred. You know? So there was a kind of almost missionary zeal in many of these professors, and it was very hard not to catch fire from that, you know. So, so there was a very exciting period. <clears throat> and I have to say, I, uh, I took physics courses in college, but I didn't really get involved as much as I should have probably if I wanted to have a career in physics. I, I spent a lot of time in other areas. And, and towards the end, I actually applied for, to the uh, philosophy department at the University of Chicago because I thought maybe I should become a philosopher. And I, and I was actually admitted, but I didn't get a scholarship, which was probably a good thing because I couldn't afford <laughs> to go. And so I went uh, and got a, went to the University of Illinois, which is nearby, and enrolled in, in the graduate uh, program there in physics. And once I got to graduate school, then, and only then, did I really understand what physics was about and really get absorbed in understanding science. So I had a long and uh, somewhat winding road to becoming a scientist and and it's quite possible i could have been some other scholar <laughs> had things not turned out the way they did you know so once i got to graduate school then i you know once you get to graduate school the the work is so intense that you have to absolutely com concentrate only on the science only on, on your subject matter because this is your real training and so for the next uh, five years or so, I worked very hard and got really excited about my field. So that's, I think, when I really began, became a scientist. Uh, and, but I never lost interest. 
in, in all the other areas. And I find, I think, that there's a close connection. I know from looking at your website that, that you're interested in this whole question of creativity and where that comes from. I think I've been periodically lucky to have some good ideas in science. And I've sometimes asked myself to, you know, how did they come about? And it's never a linear process. That's the thing that, that, that strikes me over and over again. I mean, I'm sure it's different for different people. But for me, I think probably the best way is to give an example. So when I was an administrator, you know, for 15 years, I still tried to do science. And I, it was difficult because being a dean, you know, was, a lot of every day there's a problem and every day you have to solve some personal issues and whatever so it's difficult to concentrate and what i would do was whenever there was an opportunity to go to a, a conference away from the university particularly in some different country you know i would try to go and i would sit in the, the in the conference room listening to these lectures and you know how it is with meetings maybe 10 percent of the speakers are exciting and interesting and, and the rest are just you know you begin to start falling asleep but what i found is even when i was not listening because i was i was in this atmosphere of people talking about physics my mind was set free and would just start percolating and all of a sudden ideas would come completely unrelated to what the speaker was talking about except that they were scientific ideas and i would you know jot them down and i i found that this was really quite an interesting process because it was kind of like an immersion process where you actually are not concentrating on what's exactly in front of you Right, you're not, because it's sometimes quite often it's just routine or boring talks, but but it puts you in this I don't know mood if you like or some kind of your brain turns it uh, turns on a different kind of mode, and I think by association other ideas come up, and I've found to somewhat to my surprise that many of my best ideas actually occurred more or less spontaneously when I was in this atmosphere. So it's, it's a you know, completely nonlinear process. And I've read, you know, various accounts of people's creative moments. And I find that very often they have a similarity. You know, I mean, the, the, the somewhat... Um, odd one that always comes to mind is, is Martin Luther, you know, who was famous for having his sort of, sort of deep insights into his religious thoughts sitting in the bathroom because he was, he, <laughs> he was constipated. <laughs> it's almost like you have to have something that forces you away from a linear process of thinking because if you just sit there and say i'm going to solve this problem how am i going to solve this problem 
I find that that's a, often a very unproductive approach. It's kind of like remembering somebody's name. I mean, you say, I can't remember this person's name. What is the name? The more you think about the name, the less likely it is that you're going to remember it. What you have to do is to think about something completely different. And then suddenly, you know, the name comes up. And so it's, it's that sort of free association that that's really important, I think, in, in, in getting creative ideas. But the free association has to be in some kind of context. Yes, I was well, going to say, I mean, you know, different people that I've interviewed, whether, you know, they're writers or different, you know, some people get inspiration from their dreams, which might seem disordered, but can also be a deeply meditative state, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's almost a deep concentration, but you also, but you're relaxed. I think it's a relaxation must be something to do with it because yes, when yes. things are too effortful it's like in fact when things are too effortful mm -hmm. you're looking for an answer say that you already know like you've decided where you're going and if you're still in a state of discovery that you're open then i guess that's when the new ideas come because how can you know what you're looking for exactly I, I, it is fascinating because some people say I am interested in where ideas come from and then at some point not to think of it, but just to know that that's where they came to you. Um, and you have to take part in it. But it's, uh, I also feel that as you say that you are listening to people and maybe they weren't speaking uh, exactly about your discipline, you know, they something another subject entirely, but that inspiration or creativity is also in a way an act of listening or being receptive. So yes. that, that, yeah, this relaxation and things. And then I feel with the arts, you know, I feel like if you look to the natural world or like how even a bird flies, the bird flies not by thinking every, every little, could you imagine? They will fall out of the sky if they have to think about it. <laughs> you know, they will get so, yeah. so at some point we have to, I think movement is very good that movement, these things are happening and we get carried away. It's a, it's a high, it's a different form of, it's a form of intelligence that mm. seems counterintuitive, but. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's an interesting process. And sometimes it's just very mundane. I mean, just, I think yesterday, I was uh, reviewing a uh, paper, you know. It's one of our usually fairly tedious tasks that we take on because that's what we do as a community. We act as reviewers of each other's journal papers, right? I mean, so you submit a paper to a journal, they send it out to anonymous uh, people who are anonymous to you, who are experts, and they read the paper, they comment on it. So again, it's like going to a meeting, 90% of the papers you get to review are not terribly interesting, but, but it's your duty, you know, your job to make sure that they're correct as far as you can tell and that the English language is comprehensible and all that. So I was reading this rather tedious technical paper and put it aside and then had a cup of coffee and then all of a sudden I had this idea which had no relation to the content of the papers, but, you know, it was somewhat related, right? So it's not even just going to meetings or listening, but, but even the, the act of, 
of moving your mind into this context, maybe it's even important for the, the uh, material to be not terribly interesting <laughs> at the time because <laughs> it, you know, it gets you into sort of the mood of thinking about this, the, uh, this subject, but it doesn't draw you so much so that your mind doesn't go off. You know, so it's, it's like daydreaming, you know. So you, so it, it, you start, it's boring, but you start daydreaming, but it's, you're daydreaming on the same subject. Maybe that's it. Something like that happens. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting process. Well, I want to go back. Yeah, I like that. And also, uh, somehow, if it's feeling uh, not, not too full, not too complete, you know? Because, you know, I think we're natural um, problem solvers. So that, you know, if we see a puzzle, we see something out of place, we want to put it in. So if you have something that's a little bit less than full, then it must activate something, a problem solver in us. Whereas something is perfect. Like, you know, like if you look at beauty or something and someone's face is almost too symmetrical or too, there's just nothing in it. Then I'm almost not even drawn to be interested in it. Or in terms of beauty, like you're kind of, it's interesting in in its uh, perfection, I guess. But then I almost don't want to look at an actor that's too perfect looking because I, I don't believe they're capable of the <laughs> the conflicts. Or, you know, it's another. So anyway, you don't want something. It's interesting the idea that it's it's not all there, so that you can add. Yeah, I do feel. I mean, this is maybe dealing more with the arts, but it may be applicable to the sciences. That also works of art shouldn't be too complete, so that in in order for them to engage the imagination mm-hmm. of the, um, the audience. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's very true. So it's like a bit like you know Cezanne, where he winds up not covering all the parts of the canvas with paint, but and so that becomes part of the picture. But it's but it's not, you know, it's when 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 you first see it, it's off-putting, right? Well, it looks unfinished, but actually, it's 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 very germane, you know? or like those. Those wonderful uh, Japanese uh, screens where they have clouds, the suggestion of clouds, but actually they're not even painted there. I mean, it's the rest of the, the world is painted, but the clouds are implied. You know, that's the implication by uh, suggestion, but not, not an explicit you know, statement of this is what you should be seeing. So that, that draws you in, I think that's, that's very good. I want to go back to something you were saying in terms of your foundation at the university, uh, the foundation you received in the humanities as a preparation to your further exploration of other disciplines. And that, I'm not sure that we are well serving our students and you could perhaps give a, a, a better critique in terms of scientific literacy. I mean, if one were to, and because you've been a dean, so you've been involved, I I don't know, in that part of the curriculum or providing a foundation, but you've given it Mm -hmm. some thought, how might we better prepare, not just at the university level, but even earlier, uh, to give that kind of foundation that, uh, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who have the potential to be talented scientists that aren't being reached. I mean, I was just speaking to some of our other students and they, you know, 
we have educational uh, inequality. So without having access, you were saying to, you know, classes to the classes in physics. Or, so if we don't reach them, then how do we know? Because there's a lot, there's potential that's not being reached. Yeah. And how would you go about it? What are some things we might do to improve those educational uh, systems early on even? You know, it's a really important and very difficult problem. And I, I don't think there's any you know, one way at uh, addressing it, but there are, there are different ways. And the, the approach that I am particularly drawn to, and we, we actually did some, uh, I think some, some good work in this area when I was dean, getting back to this question of, of diversity. You know, I look at this issue a little bit differently. And I think the question that I've, I sort of raised to my faculty when we talked about access and diversity and getting more students involved in the sciences, it goes back to my experiences in graduate school. So the chairman of the physics department at the University of Illinois in those days was a very wise man. This was in the early 70s. There was a lot of turmoil and perturbation you know, in the American society. Women's rights were coming up again, civil rights. There were a lot of still... The 60s was still around, right? So there was, and people were uncomfortable, uneasy, you know, not, not knowing how they should relate to this. There, was, there were a lot of stresses, marital stresses, stresses between men and women. And so he actually called us all together at some point as, as in, a, in a colloquium setting. And he, and, and he, he, he said the, the following, which always resonated with me. He said, you know, we are here because we are scientists. We are primarily scientists, we're physicists. We're physicists, which means that we want to understand nature and we, want, and we know how difficult that is and how important it is. And, and the way you make progress is you apply your best minds to this issue, right? So, you, so the issue is one of excellence. How do you foster excellence in science? And, and we know that nobody in this room is going to solve all these problems. You know, we need to increase the number of people who can, because there's always going to be some small fraction, right? It's only a small fraction of, of, of people, even among scientists who are truly creative, who are the Einsteins, if you like, uh, of their generation. How do you find them? How do you... Where do they come from? It's a very tricky issue. And then he looked at us and he said, okay, do we all agree that this is a problem? We all said, yes, we all agree this is a problem. He says, then why are you ignoring half the world? Half the world, right? There is nothing that says a priori that men or women, men or women, ab initio, are less likely whatever that small fraction of percentage of people it is that, that, that gets to be truly excellent. There's nothing that says they're any different, okay? So we really need to turn our attention to fostering the search for excellence across all populations. So that struck with me. The other thing that struck with me, and I came across this more or less accidentally in my reading when I was thinking about trying to convince people in the universities that we really have to pay attention to underrepresented groups and minorities. And it's, a, it's an example from classical music, which I really like. Okay. 
So it's so the story is it goes like this. So in the 19th century, if you look at uh, great violinists, okay, so this is a European context, of course. To be a truly great violinist, this is like being a great scientist, all right? It's it's an unusual set of circumstances has to come together. You have to have the talent, you have to have the opportunity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Who were these people? Well, they were largely German and Italian. You know, Paganini, of course, this was the, the great one. Right? And nobody's surprised to hear that, right? Go forward maybe 50 years to the 1920s in Europe. Okay? Who were the great violinists? 80% of them came from a town in Russia called Odessa. And they were largely Jewish. How did that happen? <laughs> right? How did that happen? It seems bizarre, absolutely bizarre. Well, you can actually analyze it. So there was, of course, a large Jewish population in Odessa. And they were not able to move around freely because of the rules in the, in the, in the Russian Empire preventing movement of different ethnic groups. But at some point, these rules were liber liberalized, and at least some fraction of Jews could go to universities in St. Petersburg or in Moscow. Okay. So that was an opening of a door. Okay. The second element was there was an absolutely outstanding teacher in St. Petersburg who happened to be Jewish. It was a violin teacher. And he had, he was very respected and he had good connections with the, the emperor and, and you know, uh, he convinced people to let him bring in these Jewish boys from Odessa into the academy and they would play their violin for him. And if they were good enough, then they would be enrolled in the, in the academy and they would learn to play, right? So a trickle of these kids, very poor kids, very you know, pushed by their parents, by their mothers. This was a huge opportunity. They came, they played, some of them were accepted. They went through this very rigorous curriculum. And what happened? Well, half of the great violinists of the 20th century came from that program. You know, Heifetz came from that program, you know, on and on. After the revolution, many of them went to Europe and you know developed you know classical violin playing in Europe. So you had a great teacher, you had an open door, and you had hunger, right? the hunger for a better life. You know, all of a sudden the door opens. The parents are pushing their children. Go ahead, go forward 50 years, and you ask yourself, okay, now 100 years, who are the great violinists? More than half of them are women. More than half of them are from Asia. Complete change. Why? Same dynamic, okay? All of a sudden, the door is open. There is hunger for access to the best. But also, it turns out something like 70% of first-class violinists in the United States were taught by a single professor. <laughs> this, this woman at Juilliard taught them. 
so it's a very similar thing. And I thought this is, I mean, there's a lesson here, right? I mean, you've got those, if you want to access talent and, and, and foster excellence in a community, okay, you need those three elements. You need the hunger in the community. You need an opening of a door because that's when you're going to have the, the maximum dynamic flow. And you need to have teachers who know how to, to who have the, the, the connection to these people. Right? So it's not an accident that these Jewish kids did very well with a Jewish teacher. And that many of these women, particularly in the, in the early part of, the, of this period, felt more comfortable with a, a very famous female teacher. So all of these things, I think, serve as a lesson to how we can do better. It doesn't address a lot of the other issues, okay? This is a limited kind of program. It's a program for, for excellence, not for broad education necessarily. Although I would argue if you're looking for excellence, you have to also be, but you're also going to improve the broader context because not everyone is going to graduate, but they will learn a lot. Right? So what we did at the University of Utah, actually, something along those lines, which worked very well, and it was a program called Access, which was actually started by my predecessor, who was a mathematician. Uh, and what, what he saw that young women typically don't go into the sciences for a variety of reasons, but one big reason is that they're not they don't have a cohort group. They, they feel very odd. They feel isolated if they're interested in science in high school because that's not what they're supposed to be interested in. So he devised a program in the high schools to bring in, uh, every year in the summer, we would bring in 20 to 40 young women uh, and they were you know selected carefully because we're looking for excellence here potential excellence so they you know the people with good grades who had some interest in science but were disconnected and they all came to the university they all lived together in the same dormitory on, during the summer when there's not a lot of other students and they took intensive day-long courses together taught by professors and to introduce them to different kinds of science. So there was one week of biology, one week of physics, one week of chemistry, one week of mathematics. And the crucial thing was by the end of the one-month period, these young women were a group. They knew each other. They, they had this group sense that they were together in this in this project and when they many of them then went on to this was the summer before they came to college so when they arrived at college as freshmen they had friends they had they knew professors they had confidence that they could perform well this is i think what, what my predecessor really focused in was confidence how do you build confidence because you have talent but Talent without confidence to express it often fails to blossom. Right? 
this turned out to be extremely, extremely good program. Uh, something like 80% of these young women graduated in the sciences, which is you know, unheard of before that, because usually the few that come with an interest in science get discouraged because they don't have any context to be in. You know, the, the people look at them strangely. They're usually the only woman in, in a class or something like that. And having this, this, this group of like-minded, similarly intelligent, this is really crucial. So because, you know, I remember going to high school in Florida and there were like three of us in a class that I could, that I felt I could talk to, <laughs> you know, because everyone else was interested in football. And so you feel very, very isolated if you're smart in, in, a, in a not particularly good school, right? high school. So that, so that process, that ac access process uh, still going on. And we now have almost 20 years experience with bringing in talented young women this way. So when I was dean, I also thought, well, why stop there? Okay, so one of the things that, that, that happened in Salt Lake City over the years, it became a magnet city for certain kinds of immigration, and particularly from North Africa. So we had a lot of people from the Sudan and Ethiopia, places where there was you know, significant civil war and unrest, and of course, now I think we're, we have almost 30,000 North Africans living in Salt Lake City. So this is a big, big issue trying to work with them. This is where you, sometimes you get a gift, right? And you should always accept a gift. <laughs> One day this, this young man walked into my office. He was like almost seven foot tall, Sudanese, probably the only Sudanese that I've ever met who has a PhD in theoretical particle physics, okay? <laughs> and he happened to be a postdoc. I had never met him before in, in uh, the physics department, and his postdoctorship was ending. He had all these relations with the uh, these emigre groups, right? He knew all the important people. He was interested in, in trying to help them. So, I hired him and we set up a, uh, a center. And, and this center essentially uh, does what we did with the access program for women, but now with a very different cohort of people. And the challenges, of course, are very different because you're talking about very different culture. But there is the same hunger, the same poverty, and we found the right person, right? Because <laughs> he was African, and he was both a physicist and a person who could talk their language. It's been extremely successful. I mean, the, the state of Utah has put lots of money into these programs. It's a, you know, these are called bridge programs now, where we bring in students during the summer to the university so that they can imagine themselves as scientists, as students in the university very hard for them to imagine that it's even possible when you're living in terrible conditions, you know, in the slum part of the city. So, you know, I think these kinds of programs, although they, you know, they're, they're not something that's gonna fix all our social ills, but I'm not a person 
to fix social, all our social ills. I'm a scientist and I th think to myself, if I'm going to do some good, it has to be from what I know. You know, otherwise I'm just like anybody else. So this is what we focused in. And uh, I'm very pleased, I have to say, with, with uh, what those accomplishments have been. And I think they're, there's something that are relatively straightforward to, to copy, but you have to, I think you have to have those three elements. You have to have you know, a community which is ready for it. Right? Now, it's much harder if you're coming into a situation where there's a, a, a status quo, you know, where people are just, this is how we're gonna live, we don't care. You know, you, you don't have that hunger. You know, whether it's poor Jews or poor Sudanese or women who suddenly discover that they have this option that they never thought they could have, that drives energy. You know, that's, I mean, I learned that when I was a professor at Columbia University, a junior, junior faculty member, and I was teaching introductory physics courses. And over the years, you know, you have to alphabetize all the students for tests. And I noticed that the the number of students for different letters you know for the last names would suddenly change dramatically because we were looking for we were seeing waves of different immigration coming through new york city <laughs> and and at some point we were like 40 percent korean students you know which completely changes the you know, everything starts with you know k is all of a sudden <laughs> enormously more likely as a first letter to a last name than any other name. And so you so, so at least in the United States and some cities of the United States, you see this dynamic of new groups moving in. And I think it's a real opportunity. Mia Funk sat down with Pierre Sikorsky to discuss cosmic rays, inclusion in STEM, and unsurprisingly, their creative processes. And I think what Pierre Sikorsky brought up about uh, inclusion in STEM was very important. I feel like the biggest issue with diversity programs is that sometimes they're more performative than they are actually tailored towards reaching out to minorities and making sure that they stay in these programs. Because making sure that people in STEM have a community especially at the institution level, that they can fall back on and study with and whatever else is very important. As well as making sure that they have different options and they know what those options are, like how he made sure that there were workshops over the summer for different sciences and making sure that these women who were being introduced to the program actually knew what each program was offering so that they knew whether they wanted to go in more of a bio direction or a chem direction or a physics direction. And I think that that's a really important point that some diversity programs actually miss, is that fostering the community is just as important as providing the access into the institution. And that community will make sure that more people actually stay in the institution. I honestly think that the combination of those three factors is what 
made these women graduate at a higher rate than normal. They were actually provided an inclusive community and that community actually helped them grow and move towards their degree. And with the program that was formed with the Sudanese man, he was from Sudan and he made sure that people coming in from Sudan to the institution in Utah actually felt more included because he understood their journey. And I think that those are very important factors, including people at the administrative level of the Monori group you're trying to include, and making sure you understand what circumstances are required for, you know, minorities to feel comfortable and stay in that institution for the entirety of their degree. About cosmic rays as well and your own discipline but I do want to I think it's so important and so generous for you to say and to speak about teachers because I do feel I'm not all teachers but teachers I, I do like the line from uh, John Steinbeck said that he believed that teachers could be artists and they might even their medium is the human mind and spirit and and so what you're demonstrating that is how even one passionate talented teacher you know can spark a movement a whole a whole generation and that's and then then you're speaking about the the energy of communities so it's not that one is a, a lone scientist or alone we're all whether we're working collectively or not there's something in that collective energy of being in a place we, we know where there's been you know creative cities or regions where why why was there this this flourishing you know why was you know impressionist all concentrated around here or the other areas yeah, and, yeah, yeah. an interesting thing you might not is i i've been interested in by and i don't know why i'm trying to be more equal you say that science of course has been you know traditionally you know more not open to women and so in our project, the creative process, we have participation of over 75 universities in the U.S. with their international students as well. And I have been so surprised the majority of the students that come to us, and they come from all over, including many international students, have been women. It's almost, and, and we do get men, and I'm not trying to be not <laughs> represent. So it tells me, I don't know why. I think that men are interested in creativity, but maybe... Well, what? Maybe you have an idea of why we're getting so with so many women, and it's just a bit strange. I don't know. I, partly, I think it's because, again, when you have, we're in a period, I think, of efflorescence of women in all kinds of fields because opportunities have opened. So there's there's more energy, you know, and more uh, excitement. That's part of it, I think. Uh, the other aspect, I think, traditionally, you know, I, I, I don't particularly like to generalize because, but you know, you have to, you have to generalize somewhat in order to talk. I think men are perhaps more reticent about the, the creative process because you know we're, we're trained more to do a job, you know, and to be to hold our our. Uh, emotions more closely in, more guarded. Being more guarded, I think, is probably, and of course, it's, it, it varies across the cultures. You know, if you go to Italy, you know, men are not very guarded. <laughs> but in the United, 
United States, I think men tend to be more guarded and it takes more effort for to penetrate this surface. I don't know. I don't think there's, there's I think the process of creativity is, is the same, but talking about it. But we have the people who we interview, I think it may, I, I haven't counted, I think it may be more men. It, it probably is. Initially, it was a lot more men. No, it's the students who are signing up to take part, you know, doing the podcast. So I didn't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe the men are more reticent about saying they already they don't know all aspects of it. Maybe that would be it. But and the women want to learn a bit more. It's I have to do the numbers. But I don't want to forget. I mean, you know, I want to. I'm here to learn, listen, and learn. And so, you know, astrophysics, cosmic rays. It's a mysterious process. Uh, and you have a great program there at the University of Utah. Uh, just tell us a little bit about, I guess, what drew you initially, and how, and what you know, some of your findings now and, and the whole program which is really you know there's just there's a, just a few sites in the in the world where you're able to to study cosmic rays in the way that you do so originally i was trained as a as a experimental particle physicist which is a, a similar but a little bit different so uh, in particle physics typically we do experiments in laboratories so you know, everyone's heard of CERN and the Higgs boson. And, and, and it's a fascinating field, which has to do with, with really trying to understand the fundamental building blocks of nature and the laws that govern them. But it's an extremely controlled field uh, in, in the sense that you, in order to, how should I put it? In this field, you ask nature questions and you want to get the right, the, the, you want to get, you want to ask the question in such a way that you get a, an answer that, 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 that is useful, okay. which means that you have to very carefully control the experiment that you do. Okay. So you're after a specific answer, and it could be an answer that you like or an answer that you don't like, that you don't control, but you want to be sure that you're getting that answer, you know, an answer to that question. So it's very detailed, very precise kind of field. And over the years, uh, the experiments have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. When I first started, maybe a dozen people would be working on an experiment. Now there are two, 3,000 right, working on the experiments at, uh, at CERN in, in Geneva. So in the early days, I worked on neutrino experiments, and, and this neutrinos being this very enigmatic particle, which is almost not there. And that was very interesting, but the, there was a transition in the field to much larger experiments, much larger scale kinds of things. And I felt comfortable working with even a hundred people because so much of your effort then becomes organizational. And I wanted to be more on the you know, hands-on creative part of, of, of science. So I was looking around to see what else was interesting, and I came across what was then a sort of obscure field of cosmic ray physics. Now, cosmic ray physics, cosmic rays were discovered about 100 years ago, and they're particles that bombard the Earth's atmosphere. And they're the same particles that elementary particle physicists study, but they're not produced by accelerators. They're produced by natural phenomena. And so 
in this case, when you study them, you're not, it's not a question of control because you don't control where they come from. It's more like astronomy, you know. You look through your telescope and you say, wow, what's that? You know, and then you classify and you try to figure out what that is. And in a similar way, in cosmic ray physics, uh, we have detectors that are kind of like specialized telescopes that, that look at this rain of particles and try to find out where they come from, what their nature is, or the, what kind of particles are there. And in the process, because as you look, you see higher and higher and higher and higher energies are coming uh, down on the Earth. So most of these particles are coming from the sun and, and they're low energy. But very rarely, very occasionally, you see extraordinarily high energy particles coming to us. And those are the really interesting ones. Those are the ones that, that we're particularly fascinated by because how, how is it possible that nature is produced in a proton or a nucleus uh, of that energy? How does it do it? You know, we know how, how to do it on Earth. We build accelerators. But those energies we could not ever create on Earth. They are stupendously higher than anything we could create on Earth. So there are natural processes in the universe that of themselves create these particles. And these must be extraordinarily interesting just because of the energy. So we know they're not in our galaxy. And they are most likely related to black holes, uh, the, another enigmatic and extremely interesting object, which we now think uh, the, there's a black hole in the center of most galaxies. Somehow, in the swirling mass around the black hole, an acceleration happens, producing these fantastically energetic particles. So if we can figure out, trace back where they're coming from, which galaxies, which black holes, and combine that information with information that astronomers have, the visual and the infrared and the X-ray and the ultraviolet, we can try to develop a picture or a model of this acceleration process. And it truly is the highest energy, the most violent process that we have ever seen in the universe. So we will, we're guaranteed to learn something from this. Not, not, we don't know what yet, all right? But we know that whenever we get to the edge of knowledge, which is where we're at when we're talking about this, we'll learn something new. Uh, so that's been the, the goal, to try to find the sources and the nature of these particles and it's so different from what I was trained in, in particle physics, because you have to be open to all possibilities. You're, you're not controlling, you're becoming, you have to become more sensitive, okay? So it's the, so increased sensitivity as opposed to increased control. And for me, that's been a really very nice transition. Uh, and is, might there be a way to harness this incredible energy? Or is this that even just to, I mean, you just are interested in knowing, but are there other possible applications? I mean, because now we think, you know, you know, that 
global warming and all these things that, that we want to look for solutions to. So, of course, our, our driving curiosity is, is, is pure curiosity. You know? but, but whenever you go in that direction, history has taught us you know, that, that you never know what the applications might be. You know, the, the wonderful quote I always remember is Maxwell, you know, who was one of the great British uh, physicists who discovered the, the, the laws of electricity, Maxwell's laws. He was uh, asked by Queen Victoria because she had heard about this new de development. You know, so what possibly good, what possible good is this to us? And he, his answer was, Your Majesty, what good is a newborn baby? <laughs> you know, that's... But to answer your question more specifically, the highest energy particles are very rare. Okay? So even though they're very energetic, they're not likely to, to be a source of usable energy. However, there are huge fluxes of much lower energy particles coming from, for instance, from our, from our local star, the sun. Right? So there's this whole solar wind which is pushing against the, the earth, producing all kinds of phenomena, aurora and, and radiation. So there is a lot of energy exchange between the sun and the earth. And I think this aspect, the particle aspect, together with the visible light aspect and the infrared light aspect where we're looking at solar energy, you know, all of that is really one field. Right? So it, it may very well have some connections to, certainly has connections to global warming and the climate, understanding how the sun influences the atmosphere, particularly the upper atmosphere. Cosmic rays may even have some role in form forming clouds. And of course, the amount of cloud cover you have changes the balance of energy flow and, and climate. So it's a very complicated system, but it's, it's, one, it's part of this ecosystem. I mean, really, we are in a cocoon, a magnetic cocoon with the sun. And there's this constant flow of particles, of magnetic fields, of light, of heat energy. You know, we're not isolated at all. This is, this is something that I think we, we, as Earth creatures, need to become more and more conscious of as we're facing you know, imminent catastrophe with global climate change, is how dependent we are on the rest of the environment, and not just the environment on Earth, but the, the, the environment of the solar system. So it's a fuzzy answer to your question. It's, uh, there's no direct thing I can say, but I'm confident that this is, these are building blocks which will, when put together, really enhance our knowledge of uh, how we survive down the road. And earlier you spoke of the importance of remaining open curiosity and inter interdisciplinary education. And I wondered if some of your uh, findings, have, have they come from outside your immediate discipline? Have there been things where you've been able to aggregate knowledge from, from other disciplines? And how, how has that worked for you, you know, throughout your career? Mm, interesting questions. I haven't thought about that. I think more indirectly, just in terms of modalities, you know, of thinking. You know, I've talked to a lot of people in data science who say that they learned a lot from biology. In fact, one of the people who's, who was a pioneer in this whole uh, 
web analytics business where they study how many hits you get from where and uh, consult with companies. Actually, has a PhD in biology. And he said he uses his knowledge of biology much more than his computer knowledge because it's the question of how do you think about a problem? So bio, bio, biologists look at systems. You know, they don't start from atomistic principles. You look at you know, how does a system function as, as a larger entity. And so if you think about solving problems in, in data science in the same way, you're going to have a different and maybe more interesting way of solving problems. So I think moving my, my moving from particle physics to cosmic rays, I think was somewhat influenced by the fact that I really always been attracted to more intuitive approaches to, to nature. I think when I was very young, I, I read a book by a yogi. His name is Paramahansa Yogananda. It was called The Autobiography of a Yogi. So Paramahansa Yogananda came to the United States and established a yoga school. You know, years later, I reread his biography, and some of what he says in there is a little hard to believe. But it got me interested in this whole idea, of the, shall I say, the, the more Asian approach to thinking about nature, whether it's sort of Chinese uh, Tao, Taoistic tradition or the Buddhist approach to, to nature. And there, there actually are some interesting relations between you know, modern physics and the fundamental theories of, of modern physics and what some of these seemingly very different traditions have to say about the underlying structure of, of nature. So I can't put my finger on it specifically, but because I've always had an interest in this, I think I was more ready to make the move from a very rigid kind of science, which is particle physics, to a, a, a much more open science, a broader kind of science, it's hard to say. I mean, science is science, of course, it's quantitative and you have to be very careful about what you say. But I think the emotions are different, can be different. You know? and, and different psychological types of people will be drawn to different kinds of science because of the emotional background in that science you know i think maybe that's why when you look at bio biological sciences there are a lot more women traditionally in that field it's more perhaps appealing initially at least but you you know it, one shouldn't go very far down this road because if you look at astronomy there are a lot of women in astronomy and so you ask why is that well maybe because is it because astronomy is a little bit like biology i mean you're looking at the organism is now the universe, right? or is it because of an accident, right? The, the accident being you know, the story about Harvard. So before, before the availability of photo photo photographic plates, people used to draw what they saw in the telescope. And then all of a sudden photography became possible. And so there were all these huge numbers of photographs that were taken. And astronomers needed somebody 
to scan, to look at all these plates and determine where all the stars were, measure these things on these plates. They hired and Harvard a lot of women to do this. Okay, this is quote unquote women's work, you know, tedious, microscopic, sewing, all this kind of stuff. Women are supposed to be good at this. And they were good, okay? They started looking at all these plates. They got interested. They got interested in what they were looking at. Some of them became astronomers. And it mushroomed, right? It was a chain reaction. And so you can, you can trace the fraction, the large number of women in astronomy, basically going back to those days where they were, again, allowed into the field, but only as kind of menial workers. But that was the entry point. So maybe it was an accident, but I, I kind of think that organic, maybe that's it, you know, cosmic rises, being part of astrophysics, being part of astronomy, to me is a more organic feel. And that attracts me. And how do you feel that your uh, love of music may have, I mean, does it, you know, does it feed into your wonder or is there, is there any relation to, I mean, how does it inspire you? Maybe unrelated to science, but I don't know. What role does it play? Question, interesting question. You know, listening to music, of course, has always been important for me. I can't say that I can draw a direct connection with doing science, but I also play an instrument, so I play, I play guitar. And one of the things that I've uh, been able to do over the over the years is to learn to improvise on the guitar, whether it's basically trying to play some jazz, okay? And I've noticed that when I do that, my brain detaches, almost feeling of detachment. I mean, you go into a different state entirely. It's, it's like, it takes me a while to return after I stop doing that. <laughs> it's really interesting. And I wonder whether it has some relation to, again, you know, just freeing your mind from the noise that we're, you know, we're constantly reacting to this, that, this, that. But when you go into this, this, when you're playing, when I'm playing music and when, particularly when I'm improvising, so I'm not just playing a rote piece, but I, it, it has to bring up, you know, what's the next note? Where does that come from? And it's, and it's really an interesting question because I have no idea where it comes from, right? I mean, it, it, it's a spontaneous, maybe that's what it is. It's, it makes me feel more spontaneous. Okay, so maybe that has, can be carried over to other more scientific issues or other issues in life. I mean, you know, when, when you're an administrator, you solve problems. <laughs> and uh, problem solving, whether it's actually much harder because you're, you're solving human problems, not scientific problems. But the problem solving part, again, it helps if you can just relax your mind and allow a spontaneous idea to come, say, yes, let's do this. Yeah. Or, you know, this feeling sometimes you, you don't know what to do and all of a sudden, you know it's right, you know, and you, you can't say why, but all of a sudden it's just, yes, this is the way to do it. And, and 
this is the way actually I've always made decisions, which is a, another bizarre thing, right? I mean, how do you make a decision? And I've had terrible trouble making decisions. You know, some people have, they write things down on a piece of paper and then logically try to decide. I can't do that. You know, I just, I, I do do the work. You have to do the work, right? You write all the options down and then I have to do something else. You know, I have to do something else. And if I'm lucky, you know, I'll wake up the next morning and the first thought in my mind will be the, what I want to do. And, and there's a certainty that comes with that thought, which is, it's interesting where that comes from, you know? Why, why do you feel, why do I feel at that point? Yes, that's what I want to do. And, and then I don't, I don't, I mean, it could be, a, sometimes it's a wrong decision as it turns out, right? But it's a decision that feels right at that time. And I think that process is, it has some elements of, of similarity with, with this improvisation. I mean, how do you decide what is the next phrase you're going to play? So you have the previous phrase in your mind and you have to go somewhere with it. Right? It has to have some relation to what you just played. Otherwise you're just playing random notes. And somehow the brain does that for you, you know, in a, in a non-rational way. It's, it's not a thinking process. It's an intuition of some kind. So I think most scientists will tell you who have any degree of success in their fields that most of the breakthroughs come from intuitive feelings. I mean, feelings, people think about science as some hugely rational thing, but it's real science is, is nothing but feeling. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, not nothing but feeling, but it has a lot of feeling to it. You have to have a sense, of, even a sense of what you should be wasting. You, know, you don't want to waste your time. What are you going to, you know, what is, what, what do you intuit to be the right way to go? It's a non-logical way process. It's not a logical process. It's a, so I think there are very close connections between all the humanistic enterprise, enterprises and scientific enterprises. And they just, they just cloak themselves in different language. Uh, and I think a lot of scientists and engineers, you know, have this protective wall. No, no, I'm a rational person. <laughs> I decide by logic. And there is a logic, but the logic is almost always post facto, right? After, I mean, if it's not logical, then of course it doesn't work, but you don't get there by logic. Uh, yes, and so I think that it may well be that sometimes the laws operating, there may be a logic. So there's such a complex array of calculations that we don't realize the laws, but there is, I mean, it, it also makes me trust intuition a little bit more because if I feel like I was able to plot each step or if you were able to plot each step that you took that maybe the solution would be too simple that you could follow it you know you, mm -hmm. you know there has to be yeah. something yeah more even more intelligent than me i was i like that there's something more intelligent than me yeah. can, knows it yeah yeah, yeah. no it's, it's it's true i want to and so i think you gave a very i think it's interesting for people who are not familiar with Cause cosmic rays or particle physics that you, and who may be coming from the arts because we have about 50 50 percent you know our students some are from stem and 
different disciplines and, and others a lot from the arts. And so I get, you know, I think maybe that opens a door and, and, and then they can come in. So they have to know that they're welcome and that yeah. maybe some of their skills to do with intuition. And I want to ask, um, I guess in closing, it's an education initiative and we, we were talking about, you know, global warming and there's so many issues now that we're dealing with and uh, the other systems beyond education or maybe global warming but when how would you like to improve some of those systems when you think about in relation to the kind of world we're leaving the next generation i mean what are what are what are your hopes and what do you feel we could do what is, what is it within our reach you mean in terms of, of uh, global warming not necessarily global warming. There's a number of issues. I mean, there's also the threat of nuclear warfare. <laughs> you know, we've yeah. a lot of things, yeah. a lot of ways we've got it. But, but for you, you know, when you think about that, what are pressing issues for you and what are some of those solutions or things we might begin to do? Yeah, you know, we're in a really difficult period right now, of course, with the coronavirus. But, you know, it's in some sense, the pandemic is a reminder should be a reminder that we're intimately part of the rest of the universe. You know, humans are not separate from the rest of the world. And periodically, the rest of the world tells us that very clearly by threatening to wipe us out, right? I mean, viruses are, are, have, have been around, will be around for forever. And they're, you know, it's, it's not, I don't think, a correct view to, to view them as some kind of enemies of mankind we we have to just as just as the earth is not something that we just extract energy from or raw materials from you know the the idea that 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 humanity is a, is a higher level of life or existence than the rest of the universe i think is a very detrimental and dangerous idea you know i've always liked that the, the the Buddhist view that, you know, what we call inanimate objects in some sense have a life, right? So there's a continuity, really. I think that that's the idea, that we have a continuity of, of forms between ourselves, where we have a very, very, very complex and energy-absorbing form of life, which has developed magically this, this self-consciousness and, and the rest of the, of the world. So I think to me, education that leads to this realization that just as we have a need for each other, you know, you really can't become a true, truly well-formed human being without someone else or other people to relate to, to love, to receive love, to exchange information with. In the same way, we have to relate to the natural environment. You know, it's not a separate part. It's not something we can just use you know, just as, as we, we intuitively know that we shouldn't be using our fellow man just for our own personal gain. I mean, it feels for most of us bad after a while. It's immoral or whatever. So, and, and, and I think the broader understanding of science in, in, a, in, a, in a general way, broader general education in science with this ecological imprint to try to really to develop courses or uh, discussions or lectures or you know, whatever mode, modality you want to think of, which stresses this continuity. Okay. So the more we incorporate what's around us as part of us, as opposed to separate from us, 
I think the more we're going to be sensitive to the impact that our industrial and other efforts make on this, on our environment. I think that I'm relatively optimistic along those lines. I think people are, are since the 60s really, have been gradually becoming more and more understanding of how interdependent we are. But there's still a lot of hardcore, I would say 19th century thinking out there where, you know, well, we've got infinite amount of oil, we don't have to worry, we just keep going. But fundamentally, you know, if we're gonna survive as, as a biological entity, and this pandemic is a wonderful example, it's not gonna happen if we don't develop further our sense of empathy with other people and nature. I mean, in the end, without that sense of empathy, it's gonna be dog eat dog. And you I mean you can see that unfortunately these days in the United States, in some instances where people absolutely refuse to do things that will inconvenience them but could hurt something somebody else. I mean, to me that's hard to understand, right? But that's but in a way it's the same kind of psychology that says, you know, I'm going to, to strip mine this area because I want the uranium deposit or the copper deposit. And just and the fact that this is an absolutely wonderful wilderness area with all kinds of other creatures living there, I don't care. Okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's the same mentality that says I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't want it. It impinges on my freedom. You know, it, it, it's really a moral imperative of, that, that we have to develop as a culture as, as a humanity, we are going to be in trouble more and more. I mean, we, I'm sure we'll survive the pandemic, but, we'll be, but if we don't learn from it, if we don't learn from where we're at at this point in climate change, and the answer is, you know, some people's answer is, well, you know, we're very smart and we'll figure it out. You know, we'll figure out, we'll go to Mars or, you know. Uh, that's to me, avoiding a huge positive learning experience. That's like saying, I've lived in this house so long, I haven't taken care of it, but who cares? I have a lot of money, I'm gonna buy a new house. Okay, so you just move, what you're doing is you're moving your problem. You're just moving the problem. Okay? Whereas if you stop and look at where, what's happening, you could actually maybe learn to to actually not have that problem or to address that specific problem, stop polluting your, your own home, right? As opposed to just moving to some place that isn't polluted, <laughs> you know? Uh, and how you do that, I think science has a lot to, to offer, but it's gotta be more than just science. It's gotta be some ethical, moral <sighs> awakening that, that humanity has to have. So I've always been an optimist, but I have to say it's been challenged these days. <laughs> it's certainly, yeah. some people put forth that perhaps that, that in some totalitarian, authoritarian solution would be involved. If we can't, you know, take responsibility then others. But I mean, I, I hope it wouldn't come to that. I'm certainly very hopeful in that I do get to like, yourself you know speak to a lot of young people and i see that they are committed so that um you know you just need some committed people to create movements so i'm I, i'm hopeful too but you know the doomsday clock <laughs> i think we're, go we're going into seconds before midnight now so i don't 
I don't like to think, I don't like to think about it uh, too much. But um, yeah, well, the totalitarian solution is a temporary solution, right? It's the same problem. It's just yeah, we have to have that ultimately in ourselves. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's it simply it simply gives us gives us it can give you time, but eventually, as with any in any system like that, it'll break apart and then you'll be back where you started, right? Without a, a, a real change. This is, this is a difficult problem, but these are difficult times. And maybe people will begin to see. I always go back to those individual teachers, you know? I mean, if you look at history, whether it be, you know, religious teachers or uh, music professors or, or you know, scientists, who, they can make huge differences. As individual human beings, that's the only thing we can do is to do what we can locally, right, and hope that it spreads. Well, I'm, so. I'm, I'm sure that you, and without even realizing the many, many ways, have been an inspirational figure, both locally and throughout the scientific community. So, and I know that you also collaborate with many other universities, so your, your ripple is large. I want to thank you, Pierre Sokolsky, for inviting us into your creative world, sharing your ideas about education, remaining open, your thoughts behind the creative process, inspiration, and of course, for helping illuminate the mysterious ways of cosmic rays and astrophysics, hopefully inviting others in who may find solutions to, to other questions in your own field. Uh, I want to thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for embarking on this uh, journey that you're on. It's a I think this is very important. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Anuj Chowdhury. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.